Hola, ¿qué tal? It's Paul here with another episode of the When in Spain podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. As I record this from the centre of a Chile Madrid, it is the Sunday, the 20th of December, coming up to Christmas. I can't believe it. Only five days. Well, really four days in Spain because all of the festivities really start on Christmas Eve. That's when most people exchange presents and sit down and have their big Christmas meal, actually, on the evening, uh, about 10 o'clock on Christmas Eve. Got all of that to look forward to. But I'm not talking about Christmas in this episode, as I'm sure you've probably guessed from the title. But if you're new to the podcast and you'd like to find out more about what Christmas is like in Spain, I did actually make a podcast episode and a YouTube video two years ago talking all about Christmas in Spain, the different traditions, the festivities, the regional differences of Christmas in Spain, food, drink, New Year's, of course, as well, and Los Reyes on the 6th of January, a very important day in Spain when the three wise men arrive in all of the towns and cities and villages all across Spain delivering presents to children and of course another big sit-down family meal as well. So if you're interested in that do check back uh, on the podcast. If I remember rightly the episode is called A Very Spanish Christmas and as I said I also made an accompanying YouTube video of me walking around Madrid on Christmas Eve looking at the Christmas markets, the lights, the shops, food and drink, the Spanish National Lottery, kind of explaining all of those things but obviously you actually get to see what Madrid is like at Christmas and uh, well this was two years ago so this is a pre-Covid Christmas this year of course it's uh, it's going to be quite different. Anyway, coming up in this episode, I've got a really special guest who I would say has got a very inspirational story about moving to Spain. I'm going to be chatting to Marcia Scarborough, who's an award-winning author, journalist, and she now works as a correspondent for the International Living magazine. Marsha's from the US, actually from Los Angeles, and she spent around 20 years working in Hollywood as an assistant director on numerous films and network TV shows. But sadly, in 2008, due to the financial crisis, she lost everything. She had to declare herself bankrupt at the age of 63. And I guess really what I find so inspirational about Marsha's story is that uh, three years ago, when she was 70 years old, she decided to up sticks, leave the United States and start from zero right here in Madrid, all by herself. So stay tuned to hear Marsha's story about how she decided to leave her life behind in the US, come and make her home for herself right here in Spain. Marsha's going to be talking us through the paperwork process, the visa that she acquired that allows her to live here in Madrid. And she's also going to be telling us about how she's made friends, how she's made contacts, all of the practicalities of setting up and starting a brand new life right here in Spain. She's also going to be sharing her observations and personal insights and during the episode, Marsha is going to be telling us about uh, how she found herself something of a local celebrity here in Spain when she first arrived. Yeah, that's right. She was plastered all across the newspapers and press here in Spain and across uh, much of the international press as well. So find out why that happened. And then towards the end of the interview, Marsha is going to be telling us about her books that she's written on spirituality, Buddhism, shamanism and mythology. So if you too are thinking of moving to Spain and you think it's too late, well, take a leaf out of Marsha's book. No pun intended there. Just before the interview with Marsha, I would just like to say a big thank you as always to all When in Spain patrons who support the podcast. And if you too enjoy this show, please do consider signing up at patreon.com 
forward slash when in Spain to support me and the work that I do in putting this podcast show together and bringing it to you guys. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview with Marsha Scarborough. We caught up in a little cafe in the neighborhood of Chamberi in Madrid, where she lives. Marsha, thank you so much for taking the time to join the When in Spain podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to be invited. Thank you very much. (laughs) You've been living in Spain, am I right in saying since 2017 you moved to? Yes, I moved here in March 2017. And just give us a bit of background how you came to be living here in Madrid. You're originally from the United States. I was born in Los Angeles beside the Hollywood freeway. I lived in Los Angeles until I was 60. And I worked in different professions, but the main important one was in the film industry, which is Los Angeles, as an assistant director, which is an actual union job of the production team doing the logistics and administration of shooting films. So I worked on major feature films and television programs, primetime television programs, for 20 years in different levels of that job. Wow, it sounds uh, really glamorous and uh, exotic. I'm guessing you worked on super famous shows and movies and must have met a fair few famous people along the way too. Yes, I worked with a lot of famous people and famous directors and it is exotic, not so much glamorous on the level (laughs) we are, but the main thing is it's quite exhausting because the hours are very, very long. Mm -hmm. So like minimum 12 hour days, usually more like 16. So by the time I was 50, I was uh, ready to retire. And that same year, the Directors Guild, which was my union, came out with a life expectancy survey for my job category, which Mm. was first assistant director at that point. And it was 58, and I was 50. So that was my last job. I decided (laughs) I wanted to live longer than that. And now I'm 73, so I accomplished that goal. So 58, well, that was like the, the, the alarm call, the wake-up call that said, I'm not going to, I'm going to get out of this. <laughs> and then, so what happened after that? What I'm interested in is, why Spain? So after I retired from the film business, I moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh-huh. And I went into real estate there with my idea being that I would fund my retirement uh, by buying properties and I had a real estate license in California, I got one in New Mexico, buying properties, kind of fixing them up, renting them, and that equity would be my nest egg for retirement. Mm -hmm. And I I got caught in the crisis of 2008. And uh, I had two properties that I was working that system with, and they both completely went totally so far upside down that they were worth far less than I owed on them. So I I went completely bankrupt at that point. So that was 10 years ago. By the time I was bankrupt, it was 2010. So Uh I was 63 and I had nothing left, less than nothing, because I had borrowed some money from a friend and I needed to repay her. And um, so my retirement was going to be solely my social security Uh and my pension from the Directors Guild. So effectively, at 63, you found yourself having to start from absolute zero, I guess. Absolute less than zero. Less less than zero. Yeah. And uh, so I realized I wouldn't be able to retire in the U.S. Um, And so I started researching places with lower cost of living. One of the smart things I did was, right as I was going bankrupt, 
I took a course to get a certificate to teach English as a second language. I see. Put it on a credit card and then put it into the bankruptcy. <laughs> uh, wise move, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was able to work in Santa Fe teaching uh -huh. English to faculty from affiliated universities from other countries. I see. So a lot of them were in South America, mm -hmm. uh, Mexico, Central America, Brazil, Chile, and some were from Spain. There's a was an affiliated university in Spain. Mm -hmm. So uh, part of my scheme then was to go visit my former students and test life in these different countries. Fantastic. During the winter in Santa Fe when it was freezing cold and I wanted to get out of there. So you were teaching English and obviously it happens, you become friends with your students and you developed uh, contacts I suppose and that, so that's what initially brought you to Spain was visiting one of your, your former students I guess. Yeah and I had not really considered Spain as a place to move to, I mean I was actively looking for a place to move to mm. outside the country at this point. Uh, I had lived in Mexico at one point and I liked Mexico and I like Guatemala, um, but when I came to Spain and I realized that the cost of living was way more affordable than I thought it was going to be, mm. the weather and the flora is much like Southern California of my youth, yeah. which was nostalgic for me. Mm. And then I had this uh, one very good friend who had been one of my students, and then some other student friends, and then I found it really easy to make friends. And that was the main, I think, turning point for me. Um, plus, I really enjoyed the, I'd say, joie de vivre of the lifestyle of the Spanish people. Mm -hmm. This socializing being very important, conversation being very important, um, you know, like real connection with people. And I had no, really, at that point, no responsibilities in the U.S. Like, at the minute I went bankrupt, I thought, well, I have nothing, but now I'm free. I mean, I don't even have real estate. <clears throat> I'm divorced. I don't have kids. Um, not very close with my sisters. Doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know, so it was like I was completely free. And then in Spain, there was this, this feeling of almost like community very early on in the, in the visit to Spain. So I thought... I could move to Madrid because I have friends here. That ready-made circle of uh, friends and the connections uh, to help you get, get set up. And I guess that's kind of what happened. Uh, useful having contacts and native contacts as well who speak the language and know how things work. And that was very important. And still most of my friends are Spanish yeah. uh, and quite a bit younger than me. Because in the U.S. and particularly in L.A., I'm just like a has-been who didn't go very far in the movie business. And plus, I'm an older woman, which is like the kiss of death. And here I'm exotic. And I have a career in Hollywood, <laughs> which people are very impressed with. And yeah. it was a complete game changer. I love that. I love that. Yeah, you're seen as exotic. And I think quite often we are. Whoever you are, if you're not Spanish and you come here, you, you, st you stand out. It's quite nice, uh -huh. actually. Uh, at the beginning, it's kind of a novelty that like you're the, the token kind of, I don't know, person from the US or the UK or wherever. Yeah. And people, uh, Spanish people want to practice their English. Uh -huh. They're learning English. And so, and in fact, my Spanish language has developed rather slowly because most of my young Spanish friends want to practice English. Sure. And then I'm writing all day in hmm. English, so hmm. all of those are working against my Spanish. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I found the Spanish people very curious that they really like Americans. They're really interested in American culture mm -hmm. and particularly the era I lived through, the, the 60s and the music of the 60s Absolutely. and all of that. So I'm a sort of historic monument. <laughs> <laughs>
historic reference. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though, and I think for anybody, I think that is almost like the golden age in California in the 60s. It's mm-hmm. sort of where it was at. And I lived through all that, and yeah. I saw all the great bands, and, and yeah. I was in the film business, and I you know, know a lot of those sort of cinema icons from the 80s. And I think you're right, yeah. Um, I, it's a question I get quite often from listeners. A lot of my majority of my listeners are actually American, and I think the majority of them are Californian, interestingly. Um, and I get question, I get this question quite often, like, how are Americans perceived in Spain? Are they kind of not liked? So they have this kind of reputation of, I don't know. People have said to me, you know, do they think we're ignorant? Do they think we are kind of annoying? Or I don't know what, but your perception is totally not Completely that. different. Yeah. Completely different. I mean, I think they're very curious about that. They've been very warm and welcoming to me. Uh, the other thing for me is that a lot of the things I'm interested in, which are the more like yoga, meditation, ecstatic dance, shamanism that I've studied quite extensively, were things that were not allowed in Spain under Franco. And so they were, they were introduced like 20 or 30 years later in Spain. So they're still relatively new here, things like yoga and meditation. And uh, so that gave me another advantage that this younger sort of hippie-ish group, artsy group, uh, in Madrid is really interested in a lot of things I know a lot about. So um, that, that gave me another avenue into Spanish, contemporary Spanish culture. Fantastic. I think I get another perspective on it from yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Just going back to when you, when you first moved here, how old were you, if you don't mind me asking? I was 70. So you were 70 years old when you decided to up sticks and move to, to Madrid. Yeah. I think, personally, you're quite an inspiration to a lot of people who would probably love to do that, but are kind of thinking, oh, maybe I'm too old to do this now, you know. But you're proof that it's not, and you did it, and zero regrets. The zero regrets. Also, I did it alone. This is a, another thing, yeah. and I'm still alone. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, you must have had, a, you know, a love interest or something. I like, really, no. I did it alone and I but I have many many friends here that are really supportive and I think there's several you know young men I can call who would immediately come if I needed something sure Uh, so So I mean and that was what was so important for you I guess was developing building that network of friends and contacts and uh, ahead that, of moving here. Yeah, yeah, and that started very early on, That my feeling that the, the really the network was there, you know, f- yeah. should I need it. Sure. Maybe even more so than in the U.S. Mm-hmm. When you first arrived, you were something of a sort of local celebrity <laughs> here, weren't you? Because there were, a, there were uh, lots of articles. You were interviewed a lot for the, for the Spanish national press and radio and TV and things like that. Just, just talk us through that. Okay, so <laughs> when I first came to Spain to visit, it was 2016. Yeah. And by the time I left, I, came, I was here for six weeks. And by the time I left, I had this idea that I should investigate moving to Spain. Like This seemed like the right destination. And then when I was flying back to the U.S. and I had a seven-hour layover in Dallas... <laughs> I got the worst food poisoning and I was so sick and I was so sick in the airport and on the plane back to Santa Fe and when I got back to Santa Fe and I said that's a sign if there's like ever the universe sending you a sign it's like you're gonna be really sick if you stay in the US Uh so I started figuring out how to meet all the requirements to make the move Mm. and um, 
That took about a year to put everything together, all those pieces, and get approved for the visa. Sure. Well, I would like to talk about that in a bit of detail a bit later. But yeah, so so you, you were doing uh, a recce's and coming backwards and forwards, which is a super important thing to do, I guess. Well, I just visited here that one time okay. for six weeks, uh-huh. and then I went back and I started figuring out the paperwork. I see. Okay. Uh, but by the time I actually got the visa to come here, Trump had been elected. I mean, at the beginning of the process, it was just a crazy idea. This guy couldn't possibly get elected. But <laughs> we thought it was a joke. But by the time I had the visa, he was yeah. uh, elected. And so then I thought, aha, see, it was a sign. I knew on some level <laughs> it was time to leave the U.S. And it all worked out perfectly. So I had gotten the visa. I was visiting friends in L.A. at the time that I was notified of that. And one of my friends around this same time went to a charity function where she was seated at a table with people she didn't know, introducing herself. And one of them said he was a reporter for a newspaper in Madrid called El Mundo. And she said, oh, that's interesting because my friend's moving to Madrid. And he said, really? Because we're looking for people who are, are moving to Spain to escape Trump. <laughs> she said, I'll give you her number. Uh-huh. So they contacted me. So it was like, are you moving to escape Trump? Well, actually, yeah, I am. <laughs> so they interviewed me, and it was on the front page. Oh, he, he actually took me to the airport to go to Houston to get my visa. Oh, really? He had pictures of me. That ended up on the front page of El Mundo. And then it was picked up by, like, every newspaper in Latin America. Really? And I was getting calls from my ex-students <laughs> in Chile and in Brazil. Oh, and then, wow. uh, you know. Marsha, we've just seen you on the front page. You're on the front page of the, and I think it was, like, even on the front page of the paper in Cuba. Wow. And then oh, everybody goodness. wanted me to, from Spain, start calling to do radio interviews, to do television interviews. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> also for... Um, for CNN, uh, Latin America, and yeah. like, you know, all this stuff. So it was like, they wanted to meet me at the airport when I arrived. I was like, oh, no, 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 that's, <laughs> that's not going to happen. You were in a great demand by the media at that time. Interesting. Yeah. So that's, I, uh, I have some notoriety. Yeah. What I'd like to talk about, because I think a lot of listeners will find this useful, is to just look in a bit more detail, as you just said, about the, the, the kind of process. You said you had to go back and it took about a year to get all of the paperwork in order. What visa did you apply for to be able to come and live in Spain? And then how did you go about getting it? You go to the website of the Spanish Embassy in Washington, D.C., and there, there's a list of all the different types of visas. And so the one that worked for me and probably for most of the listeners is the retirement visa, which is called the non-lucrative visa. The main drawback of that is you're not supposed to work when you have that visa, non-lucrative. Or at least not in Spain. Really, not anywhere. Oh, really? Really, that's the way it's interpreted as not anywhere. And so, uh, like, if you're doing remote work, you should not mention it. Interesting. I didn't know that. I always assumed with the non-lucrative, you just weren't allowed to generate your income in, within Spain. You could generate it in, in another country. One would think that because that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So that's the visa you chose. It's the retirement non-lucrative visa. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Okay. The only one that I think would be a reasonable alternative is if you have the money is the golden visa where you buy a property for 500,000 euros or more. Uh-huh. 
in Spain, and that gets you everything, a work permit and everything. Oh, I see. So you have to invest half a million euros in a property here yeah. to get the golden visa. Yeah. Uh-huh. So what was the process then? Was it arduous? What kind of things did you have to get in order? All right, so then from, from that website of the Spanish Embassy in D.C., mm-hmm. you find the Spanish consulate for the area of your permanent address. So for me, it was Houston because I was living in New Mexico. I think Los Angeles would have been more convenient for me, but you don't get to choose. So you had to go to Houston, Mm -hmm. which means I had to make two trips to Houston during the Trump campaign, (laughs) which was (laughs) eye-opening. So then there's a list of all the requirements, and each of the consulates can have different requirements, so that's why you have to find the one. They can make up their own. So the certain basic ones is you have to have a certain amount of money, mm-hmm. which is 25,560 euros per year in pensions or retirement. And I just cleared that threshold. And then you have to have a clean FBI report, uh-huh. and you have to have that apostolized by The Hague. Uh, so that takes a while. That's probably the first thing you should start working on. Yeah. None of your documents can be more than three months old. Yes. So you have to complete this whole thing within three months. But you know, like for me, the process of figuring it all out, how to get everything, and then starting the clock on actually getting everything. And then get it to all synchronized within and this three-month time limit. Take yeah. it to Houston or your consulate and submit it. In my case, they had add a re- added a requirement since I had printed out the requirements on No way. Which meant I had to go back and make another trip to Houston. Oh, my God. But uh, so the other thing is you have to have Spanish private health care insurance. You can't just throw yourself on the public system. You have to buy that. Is that quite affordable? Or if if anyone has any pre-existing conditions? Uh, Pre-existing conditions, depending on what they are, can be a little bit complicated. Uh, It's very affordable by American standards. By British standards, most of people are like... (laughs) But it's that much, and Americans are like, oh, my God, it's so cheap. It's so cheap, yeah. 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 There are brokers that uh, look at the different policies and compare them for you, mm-hmm. and some pre-existing conditions, some companies might take them on a, and others might not. So I think on online mm-hmm. you can find these brokers and do a comparison. I ended up with Sanitas, which is the biggest oh, yeah. Sanitas healthcare, very well known here, yeah. Yeah, healthcare yeah. provider uh-huh. in Spain, which is similar to an HMO in the U.S., Anything else that you needed to get in order here? So you, you, your paperwork, by the time that all came together, it took about a year or so. The FBI background check, you said. Uh, healthcare is obviously an important consideration. You can't just turn up here and you can't sign on to the public health system, yeah, you unfortunately. Yeah, from a doctor that you didn't have any uh, infectious diseases. Oh, really? Yeah. You had to show all your documentation of your assets and your, uh-huh. you know, all your pensions and... Yeah. All that sort of thing. Uh-huh. And then uh, you go and collect your visa you go from, to from the consulate. The consulate and you turn it in. So the requirement that they had added that is not at all the consulates. So maybe you'll be lucky and you won't get this requirement. Uh-huh. But it was that you had to have, quote, accommodation, a place in Spain where you were going to live, which you had to show a, uh, either that you had bought a property uh-huh. or a year's lease. That must be quite a difficult thing to do, almost and impossible. It's ridiculous. I know when the woman's telling me that, I'm like nodding my head thinking, yeah. <laughs> uh, and she was like, and you have to fly back to Spain and you have to rent an apartment for a year and then bring the lease and then come back to Houston. And then it's like, I'm thinking, number one, I don't even think it's possible that they're going to rent to a person who doesn't have a 
visa to live right, there. Right, right, because this can sometimes happen with Spanish bureaucracy. You, you get it stuck. Spanish you get stuck in this kind of exactly, vacuum of catch twenty two. Catch twenty two. Yeah. So that's when I called upon my Spanish friends that I had made uh-huh. and said, like, what do you think I should do? And one of my friends had some friends who rent rooms to students, and they gave me uh. a. a when you lease on a room in a student <laughs> residence. <laughs> and the embassy accepted, or the consulate accepted it. Now, I think they may have gotten hip since then, because yeah. so I don't know if that's going to work <laughs> for everybody. But then once right. I got the visa, I canceled that, and the people were, Spanish people were so lovely and so sweet, and I'm like, I'm happy to pay a cancellation fee. And they're like, oh, no, no, just come to Spain. And yeah. I understand why it's there, because once you get here, then you have one month to get your your card, your residency card. Yes. So the visa just gets you here. Then you have to go through the Department of Immigration here and get your card. To get your card, you have to have your empadronamiento. Exactly, yeah. Which is a document saying this is your permanent address in a particular city. Absolutely. To get that, you have to have the lease or the the property. So they're trying to help you get ahead of that process. Yeah, yeah. I did it all in the one month. I then had, again, my Spanish friends help me set up appointments to see apartments and go with me because my Spanish wasn't good enough, I think, to... Yeah, yeah. I think that's important to see, yeah, to call on on help of Spanish friends and contacts if you have them. It, uh, it does really help. That's right, you do need to get your NIE or your TA card, which is like your... It's the NIE, isn't it? Which is NIE, which is your fiscal number, they call it. You need that to open a bank account. You need that to do, well, basically anything. To get your cell phone, to sign your lease, to everything. You can't really do anything without that. uh, So that's super important. And once you have your visa and your passport, then you can start the process to get that. Yeah. Marcia, tell us, how do you feel about living in Madrid? How do you feel about Spain? Is there anything that's particularly surprised you about life here compared to life back in the States? Um, Has there been anything that you that you don't like? Is there anything you miss about back home? Is there anything that you absolutely love about your life in Spain? No, I'm really, really happy in Madrid. And I'm, you know, exploring the rest of Spain. I've seen a lot of it, too. But Madrid is a very exciting city. And I think it's in a particularly creative phase right now. And this is one thing that's just important to me. I'm a person who's always been involved in the arts, always been involved with writing and theater and artists and actors and like that. And right now, most of those people are in Madrid. Um, and just to prove that point, Netflix has opened its European production headquarters in Madrid. That's right, I heard that recently. Yeah. So yeah. that means Netflix thinks that the best creative people are in Madrid. So I'm really enjoying that. And pre, pre-pandemic, the nightlife in Madrid is just off the chart. And I, I like to dance. <laughs> and so there are these dance clubs in Madrid that like open at midnight you go to 6 a.m. Their dance floors are packed. People uh-huh. are, you know, s- salsa and yeah. different, you know, different types of dance. Yeah. And then there's a whole, this whole sort of hippie-ish ecstatic dance scene, another dance world in Madrid. Um, and all of that I've just really been enjoying and finding it easy to make creative friends, people who are involved in the creative world. Yeah. Also, there are a lot of immigrants in Madrid, which is something that was always in Los Angeles and something that I think makes a city really interesting. So here there's a lot of immigrants from Latin America, but also from China 
and the uh, of Syria. I've made some really interesting friends from Syria. Yeah. It's a melting pot full of creative energy. Yeah, very yeah. vital, vibrant. I think that's what Madrid is very famous for because I mean I say this a lot. You know, Madrid isn't a city of grand, famous monuments like Paris or Rome or Athens. You know, it, but what it does have is this kind of atmosphere, this ambiente, this kind of electric ambience. I find wherever you go around the city, each neighborhood has its kind of own feel to it. The liveliness, the, the outdoor culture, people being out on the streets, kids being out on the streets all the time with their families, and you can see four generations of the same family walking around together. Even the very first time I came here in 2016, when I really, this is another thing, is the safety. I've never lived in a place that's so safe that you can walk around all night, yeah. you can walk home from the club at three in the morning, yeah. and you don't have to worry about anything. So that was another factor, and I, I was here in 2016 walking around La Latina, and I saw a bunch of young people just like hanging out, sitting on the stairs in Plaza de Moros or, or somewhere, talking. And I was like, they're not even looking at their phones. They're talking to each other. They're just hanging out at one, two in the morning. And yeah. I thought this is really different and special. Like people are really connecting with each other in a serious and deep ways. As for safety, as you said, for a capital city of four million people or whatever Madrid is now, I've never felt threatened or unsafe. Like you said, whatever time of day or night walking around on your own in some quiet back street, violent crime just doesn't ha it happens, but very, very rarely. I mean, yeah. the only crime that's maybe a problem is petty pickpocketing on the metro or something like that. You just got to have your wits about you. That's yeah. all. But you're not going to be threatened with violence. Yeah. I mean, and people don't have guns. And it's just not part of the culture to threaten people with violence. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> and also, I think that the social safety net is part of that. Like when you have good health care, you have unemployment, uh, you have, uh, you know, these basic things that mean you're not going to starve and go bankrupt. That I think then that is the thing that lowers yeah. the crime. Yeah. And I think I heard you say that you like the timetable of Spanish life, the rhythm of Spanish life as well, because everything <laughs> goes on a bit, everything starts a bit later and goes on a bit later here. Yeah, it's, it's very nocturnal, and I mean, the, the natives are called gatos, like cats, like they're out prowling around at night, Absolutely. and this is very much like that. And I have never been a morning person, which to me was one of the great hardships of the movie business, where in, sometimes you have to be there at 5 a.m. for an yeah. actress who has two hours of makeup before the 7 a.m. shooting call. Yeah. And I, I really hate getting up early. Me too. <laughs> I'm not a morning person either. And Spain is perfect. And a lot of things go on at night. And then the whole day is shifted later. So lunch is at 2, mm. 2 to 4. Mm. And then dinner's at 9, which has always suited me fine. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. some of my best working hours are that between 4 and 9. You know, so as a writer and a freelancer. Yeah. It's perfect for me. Any negative, any downside, you say? Any frustrations you've come across? Anything that you don't like? On the whole, we love Spain. <laughs> but it's true to say that when people think about moving, relocating to, to Spain, whether it's Madrid or somewhere else in Spain, that we kind of look at it maybe through a slightly rose-tinted spectacles and everything's going to be really easy. But there are quite a few challenges involved with relocating to a different country, any country. Well, for me, the, the language has been the biggest challenge. And I spoke some Spanish before I came, but mm. Latin America, in Spanish um, or, or LA street Spanglish you know. <laughs> but uh, 
So that has been a lot harder than I thought it would be. And I've taken various kinds of classes Mm -hmm. and gone to the Escuela de Idiomas Mm -hmm. and like that. And it's definitely getting better. But the frustration for me is, I mean, I can handle all the normal things of daily life. But because I'm in a sort of artistic community, I want to be able to have these conversations about art or politics or spirituality with Spanish people in Spanish. Um, And I'm not at that level. Also, with the language dealing with the bureaucracy, the immigration office, or real estate contracts, mm-hmm. or, or things like that, I always take a bilingual Spanish friend with me because I'm afraid I won't understand the details of it, yeah. or they won't understand what I think I'm perceiving. Yeah. You know, so it, it, that's a little difficult, that's, and you really yeah. need Spanish friends to help you with that. Tell us one of your, or a couple of your favorite places in Madrid and things to do. We've just had a, a nice long four-day weekend, which is another great thing about Spain, and is throughout the year we have a lot of public holidays that they kind of put together and gives us, well, we've just had a four-day weekend. But what do you like to do in your free time in terms of exploring the city? Where would you suggest? Tapas bars that nobody knows about. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to say the names because then they'll become touristy. <laughs> but like, if you have Spanish friends and they show you their favorite tapas bars, they're 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 a different thing, and they're very lively, and they're really packed with people from the neighborhood, yeah. and they have unusual or different types of things than you find in all this the standard tourist tapas bars. Yes. So authentic tapas bars. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, also, I th- it's a touristy place, but I think it's amazing is San Ginés with the hot chocolate. Ah, yeah. And it's like you don't think about cha- Spain as having amazing chocolate, yeah. but oh my God, that yeah. particular, the really dark chocolate that's not too sweet with yeah. the crispy churros that don't have sugar on them, yeah, that yeah. combination of bitterness and crispiness and... Mm. Yeah, yeah yummy. Churros and chocolates. Choc- yeah. ch- churros y chocolate in, from San Ginés, which is right in the center, quite close to Sol. Um, uh, a kind of legendary place for your churros and chocolate. Yeah, yeah very and good. And until the pandemic, it was open 24 hours wow. a day for 127 years or something. That's right. They have been closing at night now because yeah. of the, the curfews and things. But. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's, that is a shame. There's lots of mm. things that have closed for the first time in you know hundreds of years or decades at least. And the other thing I don't think I've seen anywhere else, anything similar in the world, is Tony Dos Piano Bar in Chueca. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I know the place. So this is like an old school piano bar. It's in the gay neighborhood, Chueca, but it's not necessarily gay-centric place it's more like a vintage place with this huge piano and piano players that it opens at midnight it closes at 6 a.m it's packed with people and it's not karaoke you're not singing from some video or that there's a live piano player and people get up and sing they know the song and they're amazing like professional singers and the place is packed with all different kinds of people and they know the song and everybody sings along it's just really incredible yeah, it's, an, it's an amazing place an amazing magical place it's like from another time isn't it uh-huh. yeah so that's i always try to get people to go there yeah. and usually american friends who are visiting are like oh we can't stay up that late it's like no you're in spain spain stays up late this is like really uh, uh, part of the culture i have to agree i've had uh, americans visit me here in madrid or i've had people saying to me that they've listened to the podcast and they've come to madrid and they're kind of like 
Paul, I don't understand where all this kind of busyness you talk about is. I mean, with the bars that were really lively and loud and bustling. And I, well, okay, yeah, what time were you going to these bars? <laughs> you know, if you're going at 7 or 8 or 9 p.m., they're going to be dead. They'll be empty. You need to be going at midnight, 1 a.m. And I think that's important to mention, to really get the authentic... Uh, vibe of Madrid mm-hmm. you need to go out late there's no way around it otherwise you're going to really miss out I think yeah. yeah and this is the sort of sad thing about the pandemic is all that's shut down but like the another one for me if you're a salsa dancer is um, La Negra Tomasa a Cuban bar mm-hmm. in near Seoul downtown yeah. Yeah. And that opens the dancing starts at midnight and it goes to 6 a.m. to live Cuban bands after the first hour, you can't even move on the dance floor. It's yeah. so packed. So packed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's, it's super place. fun. Yeah. I'd like to talk about your writing, actually, because you mentioned that you're, a lot of your friends here, you're kind of plugged into that, I think you described it as like the kind of hippie alternative community, that people are into yoga, that kind of thing. You mentioned uh, briefly at the beginning of the podcast about shamanism and, and yoga, lots of things, and you've written two books on this as well. Tell us about that. So this kind of started when I was 40 and it was a time in my life when everything was falling apart uh, and the, it was when the movie career started to sort of go downhill. Uh-huh. My parents were dying, my marriage was clearly falling apart uh-huh. and then I got a diagnosis, uh, a bad mammogram, uh-huh. right? And so in that, in the US, in the healthcare system, then you can't get an appointment for the second mammogram for another two weeks and then they say you have to see a, a radiologist that's another two weeks you know so there's a long period where you're in limbo with that during that time a friend said there's a native american medicine man in town doing private healings and i was like sign me up because at least it's something i can do yeah. now i had already been studying buddhism and doing some meditation retreats and that kind of thing this interestingly Native American religion correlates in many ways with Buddhism. So I had this healing and the next day I was going for this sonogram for the mammogram issue and the doctors were like, there's nothing there. Why are you here? So I thought, okay, whatever that guy did was really interesting. (laughs) And so I started to study with him and and that got me going to New Mexico because he was from New Mexico. So I was back and forth from New Mexico, still working in the movie business and then, you know, became like studying it more and more deeply. And ultimately when I retired, I moved to New Mexico in this whole world. Kind of simultaneous, like overlapping by a couple of years. I also, uh, in LA, LA, we were having riots similar to what they've been having now. I mean, it's been going on for years and years. Uh, And one of those nights when the city was on fire, and I was thinking, I wonder, Africans surely must have indigenous religion like Native Americans do. If we learn more about that, maybe that would be sort of helpful. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of these racial conflicts are really about people, people losing touch with their original spirituality, mm-hmm. uh, which we do to oppress people. We disconnect them from their uh, spiritual roots. And so then, in, like within a week, I had a flyer for a workshop with an African shaman, uh, and then I ended up studying with him. So, and the interesting thing is, the two were quite similar in that they were both about uh, healing through drumming, dancing, and uh, chanting, or because yeah. so repetitive movement, uh, repetitive sounds realign our vibration Mm -hmm. and our vibration is very scientific you know from quantum physics that we're only made up of atoms that are just like little particles vibrating 
So really, my teachers would say, we're composed like music is composed. Nothing is actually solid. It's all, and we know that from Einstein, E equals MC squared, right? Matter and energy are always in flux. So the teachings are based on that. So the first book I wrote was about the studies with the Native American medicine man. The second one is about with the African shaman. Yeah, we have the books here. So your first one is called Medicine Dance. One woman's healing journey into the world of Native American sweat lodges, drumming meditations and dance fasts. And your second one is called Honey in the River. Shadow, Sex and West African Spirituality. They're really interesting. They're available on Amazon. You said it was a UK publisher, so they're definitely available on Amazon UK. Yes. I'll put a link to these in the show notes of this episode as well. Have you found that here in Madrid or in Spain uh, that people know about this or are into it? Is it they're some... interested in it and they, they know a little bit about it. And so that's been you know kind of good for me is that they're... They want to learn more. Open so, yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. been one source of friendships that people are curious about it and yeah. like that. But also part of this world is the world of ecstatic dance, which started in the U.S. about 30 years ago, but it's fairly new, I'd say, within the past less than 10 years in Spain mm -hmm. and has really taken off. So there's a, quite a scene of ecstatic dance events in Madrid, Barcelona, Valencia, and in the summertime, these ecstatic dance festivals that people go camps and things see, so see, see. so that's quite fun Marsha you're off to Malaga uh, very soon how has that come about one thing I wasn't expecting was that I would end up writing for an American magazine yeah so I'm writing for this magazine international living and uh, I'm just covering like what expat life is in Spain yeah and there, there's quite a few expats in the Malaga Costa del Sol area and I don't really know that area mm -hmm. so they're sending me down there to talk to some expats and yeah. take a look at the area. I think, so. you'll, I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll like Malaga. It's a place that's very close to my heart. So I'll be interested to see what you, what you make of it and I'll give you some recommendations. But yes, yeah, so you write for the International Living magazine and website. Really useful resource. I've, you have some videos on there as well. So I'll also put a link to, to that in the show yeah, notes of this. I think that uh, people who want I have one um, video where I just talk about the visa requirements yeah. and then another about cost of living in Spain and you know people are looking for information that's a good place to look there's a the international living website the Facebook page and the YouTube channel I see and this is um, specifically designed for Americans uh, for, coming for North Americans for North Americans yeah uh -huh, Canadians okay. and Americans well Marsha it's been an absolute pleasure well thank you very much it's been a <laughs> pleasure so nice to meet you So that was Marsha Scarborough. I really hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did interviewing Marsha. If you'd like to find out more, head over to her website, which is MarshaScarborough.com. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes of this episode as well. And if you're interested in practical information and advice about moving to Spain, do head over to the International Living website that Marsha writes for. And the address is InternationalLiving.com. If you find Marsha on there, you'll find some really useful videos that she's made uh, as well with practical advice and her observations on life living here in Spain. So with that, I'll wrap up this episode. Thanks for joining me. And don't forget to tune in again next week for a brand new episode of the Wedding in Spain podcast. But until then, I will wish you all a happy Christmas. Feliz Navidad, felices fiestas, and hasta luego. Music